0: Please turn to Philippians chapter two, if you would, please. Philippians chapter two. <clears throat> Quite a fitting song tonight for, uh, for the message about giving, and being willing to give and willing to sacrifice. We're going to talk about that a little bit tonight. I want to speak to you on the subject: willing to be sent, willing to be sent. Let's pray, we'll read our text, and I'll introduce the message. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your precious word, and we have another privilege tonight and opportunity to open it and read from it and be challenged by it. And I pray we'll be stirred by it, Uh, we'll be changed by it. Uh, What a wonderful example the life of Timothy is that we're going to read about in this passage of Scripture And I pray that you'll help us to strive to model his commitment to you and his willingness in the service of the Lord. Speak to us again, as I've prayed often, in specific ways. And I ask for your help tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Philippians 2, verse 19. Can I read verse 17? It's not part of my text, but I love this thought. In verse 17, Paul said, Yea, and if I be offered... Upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. The word offered there refers to the Old Testament drink offering, where as they placed the sacrifice on the altar, they would take wine and pour it on the sacrifice. They light the fire to consume the sacrifice, and the wine is immediately consumed. The, as you can imagine, the fire would immediately consume all the moisture from that, from that uh, offering and, uh, and the wine does nothing more than make the sacrifice a sweeter smell to God. And that's Paul's attitude about his service for the Lord. Isn't that an amazing thought right there? If my life can be nothing more than just to help you be a greater servant for God, a sweeter smell to God. He uses the same word in, in uh, 1 Timothy 4 or 2 Timothy 4 where he says, For I am now ready to be offered and the time of my departure is at hand, Uh, Paul's attitude was, if God can just use me to help you a little bit, it doesn't matter about me. I can be consumed away and forgotten, but you go forward in faith, then God will have used me in a great way. And uh, that's a great verse. Nothing to do with my message. Verse 19, please. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ's. But you know the proof of him that as a son with the Father he hath served with me in the gospel. Him, therefore, I hope to send presently, so soon as I shall see how it will go with me. But I trust in the Lord that I also myself shall come shortly. I've said this every message so far, so let me not break the chain. God is on a mission, and all of history revolves around that mission, and our hearts and our lives should be consumed with that mission. There is an abundant supply of normal Christians. There's an abundant supply of, you might want to use the word, average Christians. And I'm not sure who gets to define normal. I think we all define normal as, well, I'm normal, so I'll compare you to me. That's normal. But when I say normal Christians, maybe I should be using the word nominal, which means half in, half out, in when it's convenient, out when it's inconvenient. There are, uh, it is a rare find to find fully, absolute, fully committed Christians. So few Christians are willing to make an out-and-out commitment to God Many are Sunday morning only. Many are tithe only. Don't ask me for missions money or building fund money. Just I'll, I'll do my, my obligation, but ask, don't ask for more. Uh, many Christians are just very little time, if any, in the Word and in prayer, and rarely, if ever, witness for Christ. And Christian service beyond those basics is asking too much. Vance Havner said, Most Christians live such subnormal lives that if they began to live a normal Christian life, people would think them abnormal. It's difficult today to find those willing to make a long-term, deep-hearted commitment to whatever God wants and do it well with heart and soul. Barzillai said to David once, uh, his servant, he said, thy servant will go a little way. And I'm afraid we have some folks who are willing to go a little way. It's kind of the spirit of the age. Uh, A very weak committed, weakly committed generation. Uh, My friend, Joel Powers, brother David Brown knows Joel Powers, used to be the regional manager for USA Today newspaper. I think he was over seven states in the southeast. And he said they had a a thing in the office that they used to refer to certain employees. They called them WIFM employees, W-I-F-M, WIFM I said, what does WIFM mean? He said, it stands for what's in it for me. And there are a lot of Christians who are WIFM Christians. We're we're in it for the gain it gets for us. Uh, We we want what God provides for us. But my challenge tonight, and you're here on a Tuesday night, so I thank you for being here and you are committed to the Lord and you're here because you wanna be challenged and you want to be sharpened in your Christian life. So my challenge for us tonight is can we allow God to begin developing us into fully and absolutely committed Christians that will do, as I've said earlier this week, whatever God wants, wherever God wants, for as long as God wants. And yes, this message is directly related to missions because it is very possible that God is asking you for a level of commitment that exceeds anything you've given prior to today. God may be asking you for a level of financial giving that you've never been to. He may be asking you for a level of prayer commitment that you've never been to before. He may be asking you for a a surrender to location where you've never gone before. And I, I, I don't try to emotionally stir people to surrender to missions, but every one of us, every single one of us ought to be able to look to God in all sincerity and say, I'll go wherever you want. Amen? So maybe God wants more from you than he's ever gotten from you before. Would you consider that possibility tonight? That, he, that you would give yourself to the mission of God, not just to missions, but give yourself to the mission of God in whatever way he wants. Paul probably met Timothy on his first missionary journey. And uh, Timothy was saved because of the faith of his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. And it was probably the influence of Paul's preaching that spurred on his growth his spiritual growth, and uh, their relationship developed to the point where Paul frequently referred to him as his dearly beloved son. Paul enlisted Timothy as a fellow laborer on his second missionary journey. In Acts 16, verse 2, Timothy was well reported of by the brethren, and from that point he began to follow and serve with the apostle Paul. And uh, I want you to notice in our text how Paul described him. I'm not going to define the word right now. We'll come back to it in the third point. But he says in verse 20, For I have no man like-minded. In verse 19, he says, I want to send Timothy to you because I have no man like-minded. Now, that verse does not mean I'm sending Timothy because I can't find anyone who's like-minded. This verse means I'm sending Timothy because he's the only one I have who's like-minded. So Paul said Timothy was a like-minded servant. And we'll define that word in just a few minutes. So I'm suggesting that he was far above average. He was far above being a nominal Christian. He was a fully committed servant of the Lord. And I want to give you three simple thoughts from this passage to prove that. Number one is just a restatement of my title, willing to be sent. Notice in verse 19 you see the phrase, the two words together, to send. Notice in verse 23 you see the two words again, him therefore I hope, to send. That phrase is found in the New Testament 79 times, and three of those are right here in this chapter. The phrase, to sin, not only speaks of Paul's concern about the church at Philippi, but it also speaks of Timothy's availability, of Timothy's willingness and readiness to go where he was needed. Now think about this. Henry Martin, on the eve of his departure to serve as a missionary in India 100 years ago, said i go to burn out for god now that not only testifies of one who is being sent to a foreign field but it testifies of one who is very willing to go that doesn't sound like somebody who's being pushed into it does it i go to burn out i'm going to give it all Uh, robert morrison who went to china as a missionary a hundred years ago and and translated the chinese bible said said to god when he was knew he was being called to missions he said I'll go anywhere you want, but please station me in the hard place. That doesn't sound like someone who's being pushed in. It sounds like somebody who's ready to give it all. So Timothy was willing to go. He's he's available. He's willing to be sent. John Payton, you may have heard this story before, but he was testifying to the society that that was going to send him out as a missionary and telling them of his burden and his call to the New Hebrides Islands. And he said to them, he said, I, I, here's the place I want to go and I want to serve. And an older gentleman in the crowd stood up and said, son, those islands are inhabited by cannibals. And if you go to those islands, you'll be eaten by cannibals. And John Peyton replied, with all due respect, sir, uh, you're an old man and soon you're going to die and they're going to put you in the ground and you're going to be eaten by worms. And it doesn't matter to me if I'm eaten by worms or cannibals. I'm going to go give it all for God. And I don't know if I've ever read a missionary story more stirring and moving than the life of John Payton. So here's what I want to suggest to you tonight. It is your duty to be prepared to go. Now, I've heard this before. If God called me to the mission field, I, yes, I would, I would, I would, uh, I, I would go. <laughs> that doesn't indicate readiness, does it? Instead of saying, if God called me, I would go, why don't we say, I'm ready, what's my assignment? Amen. That's a big difference in attitude, isn't it? Uh, we talked about the goer versus sender mentality. We have the specially called group over here who is sent to the foreign field, and we have the other group over here who's let off the hook. And we get to do, decide what we do with our lives. And may I say in, that none of us get to decide what we do with our lives, because we're not our own, are we? So if God were to call you or to send you to some dark corner of the globe, would you go? And I want to suggest that it's not our duty to get ready when he sins. It's our duty to be ready, to be ready, not get ready, but to be ready when he sins. We ought to be in such a state of spiritual preparedness that God could say to us anytime in any circumstance and say, say to us, I need you here. And our answer should immediately be, I'm on my way. I'm on my way. We all face this test of willingness. Uh, Someone said we ought to change our philosophy of, here I stay until God says go. Maybe we ought to change it to, here I go, unless God says stay. But we all face this test of willingness. Am I really willing? Can Can I honestly, from the bottom of my heart, look to God and say, Wherever you want me, I'll go. Now, it's not going to be the foreign field for all of us. It may be across the street for you. It may be to a neighbor. It may be to a co-worker. It may be to a family member. But God, where do you want me? Who do you want me to talk to? Who am I sent to? Because we're all sent, aren't we? Are we willing to be sent? Could I I give you this? Let's talk about some obstacles the different Bible characters overcame in order to go. So the first one, obviously, would be Timothy. Let me, let me give you this one. Timothy was willing to be sent in spite of the distance. The distance. Do you know that from Rome to Philippi, where Paul was concerned about the church of Philippi, he's writing this from Rome, that's a distance of about 800 miles, and in Paul and Timothy's day, that would be a five- or six-week journey. That's a long way, isn't it? There were no jet planes, there were no trains and automobiles. When Hudson Taylor went to China and Adoniram Judson went to Burma and William Carey went to India, it was a three to six month journey by ship. So you arrive on the field and you write a letter back home to tell them you've made it safely, and they get the letter and they answer it and send it back to you, and you've already been on the field for a year before you get the letter. Um, Today, uh, I can go anywhere in this world, as I've traveled to about 30 different countries, I go anywhere in this world and I can pull up my phone and hit a couple of buttons and I'm looking at a video picture of my wife and my daughter and I can talk to them on the screen. Or if we don't have time to talk, I can send them a quick text and in literally milliseconds, boom, it pops up on their screen. Communication is not a problem. The distance is not a problem. Can fly anywhere in this world and get there in 24 to 48 hours, even to the uttermost parts of the world. I went to Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia one time, and if you don't think that's the uttermost parts of the world, you, you need to try it. But, but we have the technology today that, that reduces this distance vastly, doesn't it? But the general condition of the church is we seem less willing to go than we ever have before. I can never go that far from home. May I ask you this question? Is the Lord worthy of the kind of commitment that might call for you to spend some time a long distance from home? The obvious answer to that question is yes, isn't it? The Lord is worthy. How about this obstacle? Uh, Moses was willing to be sent in spite of his own feelings of inadequacy. Inadequacy. You You know the story in Exodus where God is calling Moses at the burning bush? The bush is being burned, it's on fire, but it's not being consumed. And Moses approaches and the voice from the bush calls out to him and says, take off your shoes because you're standing on holy ground. And Moses knew immediately he was talking to the Lord. And the Lord said, you go, tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses began to respond. And I don't like, I don't like to say Moses made excuses. I think Moses was voicing his concerns because he wasn't saying no yet He was just saying, well, what about this? So the first thing he said was, well, who am I? Why would you want me? And then he said, they won't believe me. And then he said, "Um, uh, who who can I tell them sent me? And then he said, well, well, what about sending somebody else? And he goes through this progression of expressing his own self-doubt, his own feelings of inadequacy. How can I possibly do what you're asking me to do? Now, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I haven't asked the missionaries personally this question, but I could ask any of the four missionaries who are with us this week and say, do you feel qualified to go to the field God's called you to go to? And the answer would be no. If I ask your pastor, do you feel qualified to be the pastor of this church? I'm certain he would shake his head no. And if you are part of a church where the pastor says, oh, I'm more than qualified for my job, you should find a different church. Because, listen carefully, I'm going to let you in on a big secret. None of us are qualified. We're all inadequate. And, and people who are called to the foreign field are not super saints with skills you don't have and with, with gifts you don't have necessarily. They are people who just say yes to God every time God speaks. And it astounds me, two things in this uh, really story really astound me. Number one, God took the time to answer everything Moses came back at, with, back at him with. Moses said, well, who am I? And, and God assured him, I, I, I'm with you. And they won't believe me. So God gave him signs, throw down your rod. Uh, and, and he said, who am I going to tell him sent me? He said, you tell them I am that I am sent you. And God took, I think it's 53 or 55 verses to deal with Moses' inadequacies. If I had been God in that situation, I might have just kicked him in the rear end and said, because I said so, get out of here. Right, But here's the second thing that's amazing to me in that story. After God was finished dealing with Moses and his inadequacies, he went. Listen carefully to this statement. Moses did not allow his inadequacy to prevent him from obedience. So when you're done with your excuses, whatever they are, when you're done with your excuses and God has dealt with them and answered your heart, will you still go? See, I really believe this may be the biggest test for each of us as believers. Just willingness. Willingness. Never allow your excuses to become objections to the leadership of God. Because the Lord's worthy of you stepping out, trusting Him. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So if I go into this thinking I don't need God, I'm walking in sin. Right? Right? Uh, Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. So if I go into this endeavor thinking I've got it licked, I can handle this by myself, that's not an act of faith, and that does not please the Lord. So the Lord is worthy of you stepping in, whether you feel like you can do it or not. When God called me to pastor, I I knew I couldn't do it. But by faith, I stepped forward, and I told God I'll walk through whatever door you open, and I followed and I'm no great example of, 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 of a Christian or a pastor, but when God called me to missions and he called me specifically to Bible translation, I thought, I don't have a clue how to do that. But we stepped forward by faith. And I remember telling my wife that I had made a promise to God, I'll walk through every door you open if you'll provide the funding and the personnel. And today our ministry Our ministry is so blessed financially with with over 400 churches partnering with us and a staff of 40 people full and part-time. And God keeps providing people and funds because I believe God wants the world to have his word more than we do. And we're just simply making ourselves available and he's using us and we thank him for it. So distance shouldn't be an obstacle. If it is, you can overcome it. Inadequacy should not prevent you from following God. How about this one? Uh, danger. Just two quick examples. Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17 was told to rise and go to the house of Ahab. Now that's a dangerous mission because Ahab and Jezebel have been trying to kill him for a while. But verse 2 says he arose and went. Not knowing how it would turn out, not knowing if Ahab would kill him when he got there, he just obeyed the Lord. Ananias was told to go and minister to Saul. This was after Saul got struck down on the, on the Damascus Road and he was told to go to the house and where Saul was and minister to him. And I'm pretty sure, I can't find it in the text, but I'm pretty sure Ananias said, Are you serious? <laughs> because this is the man who's been killing all of us. You want me to go minister to him? But Ananias went and extended Christian fellowship to the Apostle Paul. Today, we want to know all the risks and dangers involved so we can weigh out our decision. And we can decide if we think it's worth it to step out in obedience. But the danger of the situation should never be an obstacle. I commend Brother Robertson on his courage in going to a place uh, like he's going and, and the willingness to step in if the door opens right on into North Korea. And, and yes, it's tough. You think twice about it, don't you? It's not... This guy is not a brave soul. Right now, he's just following the Lord, and that's the job of every one of us. Every one of us, just to follow God. Now, the fourth one I'll give you maybe is a kind of a twist on the thought, and you may not have thought about this one before. But how about present success? That can be an obstacle. Do you know sometimes it is far more difficult in in surrendering and following God? It's far more difficult to leave what you have than to accept what you're being called to. Philip was in Samaria preaching a revival meeting, and and the Bible says in Acts chapter 8, verse 8, many were being delivered, many were being saved, and I'm pretty sure that his name was up in lights on the marquee, and he was supposed to preach that night at 7 p.m., but the Holy Spirit said, go to the desert. And I'm pretty sure, I can't find it in the text, but he said, go where? Go to the desert, Gaza, in the south. And he thought, there's nobody out there and I've got a ministry going here that's being very successful. You want me to leave this? Sometimes what you're walking away from is harder than what you're being asked to accept as a future area of service. So don't let present success be an obstacle. Are you willing to be sent? Number two, Could I suggest Timothy was willing to make sacrifices? Willing to make sacrifices. This is not implicit in the, uh, in, in the te- explicit in the text, but it is implied. Notice in verse 22 where it says, But you know the proof of him that as a son with the father he hath served with me in the gospel. That's the word doulos, which means bond slave or bond servant. So it doesn't say he served me. It says he served with me, which means he got in the yoke with me and he became a bond slave to Christ just like me. And he has been a faithful and loyal and diligent, humble, sacrificial, willing servant. Now, it's hard for us as Americans to even wrap our minds around sacrifice. When money is flowing and life is comfortable and we're surrounded by Christian civilization... What does sacrifice mean? What does sacrifice mean? Can I give you two or three things that Timothy sacrificed? I believe he sacrificed his family. And I've alluded to this already, but from 2 Timothy 1, we get the idea that Timothy was brought up in a wonderful home with a godly, nurturing environment there with his mother and his grandmother. They loved him, they taught him, they spiritually nurtured him. uh, Just a quiet, loving home. Uh, getting saved at an early age, but when Paul came along and said, I need somebody to serve with me, he was willing to walk away from that wonderful home. Many times, family is the reason one does not serve the Lord. We are discouraged by our family sometimes. Don't you even think about moving to a foreign field. You're not going to live that far from home. I want to be around you, and I want to see my grandkids... Don't you dare take my grandkids across the ocean? To think of breaking family ties to cross the ocean or to live in a foreign country. Some just say, you know, I just don't know if I can do that. But Timothy walked away from his family to serve. Is the Lord worthy of us doing that? We were talking last night with a family in your church, and I and they're probably here tonight somewhere, and I think I'm saying the name right. Beppel, is that right? They have a a son or a daughter in Africa, in Ivory Coast, Ivory Coast. And they stood in the uh, lobby last night and said to us, uh, we were talking about their their son, is it son or daughter? Their son being so far from home, and we said, is that hard? He said, oh no, we love him being a missionary, and we're gonna go help him. I thought, man, that's a great attitude for parents. And then he said, well, it's kind of selfish because we want to see our grandkids. (laughs) But the idea is, that we ought to be willing to let our children go. You know, the greatest joy I think I might ever, ever, I ever have in my life would be if my 13-year-old daughter said to me, I'm going to the mission field, Daddy. Yeah, I would cry. It would hurt. You'd be too far. I want to see you all the time. You're going to be a long way from home. But I would be thrilled at the prospect of my daughter wanting to follow Jesus and serve him wherever he calls. Jesus said in Luke fourteen twenty six, If any man come to me and hate not his father and his mother and his brothers and sisters and his wife and his children, yea, his own life also, he won't make a very good disciple. Is that what it says? No, it says he cannot be my disciple. You cannot follow Jesus if he's not supreme. You cannot follow him if you don't put him at the top. And everyone else take a back seat. Everyone else take a second place. What he calls for is worthy of our obedience. Not only family, but how about fellowship? Timothy was ready to sacrifice fellowship. Now you might not think of this, but it's implied in the text. We're in Rome where this epistle is being written, and Paul wants to send Timothy to Philippi, 800 miles away, and this fellowship between Paul and Timothy is sweet. Remember my dearly beloved son? Uh, in 2 Timothy 4.21, he's writing to Timothy and he says, Do thy diligence to come before winter. I miss you, Timothy. Please hurry and come. I want to see you. The one person at the end of his life, he wanted to be near when, when he was getting ready to be offered and pass into the next life, go to heaven. He, he said, Timothy, come, come. But Timothy was willing to leave Paul and walk away from that good fellowship. Do you ever think about how lonely it can be for missionaries on the field? And this is not a good commercial for missions. I realize that, but I want to tell tell you how it is. Brother Charters sat right here last night and talked about 363 days out of the year, his wife is fine, but on Thanksgiving and Christmas, she misses her family. And I have a sneaking suspicion that it's more than just two days a year. She's a brave and obedient soul. But I was on the mission field in Mongolia one time with... Uh, with a family who had been serving there at that time for six years. The lady's name is Beth White. I don't know if you remember Martin or never knew Martin and Beth White. Martin was called back to the U.S. to pastor the church where he was sent from after six years on the mission field, eight years on the mission field, and he came home, preached one Sunday, and had a stroke and never woke up and died. And his family says, God didn't bring us back to pastor this church. God brought us back so our daddy could die in the States. But Beth White on the mission field after six years in a city of two million people in Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, I asked her the question, what's the hardest thing you deal with on the mission field? And in three seconds, tears were flowing. She said, loneliness? Loneliness? She said, I would love to pick up the phone and say, hey... Friend, can I, you meet me at the coffee shop down at the corner and let's pray together? And let's talk a little bit. I'd like to share a prayer request with you. She can't do all of that. My friend Mickey Kofor in Kotgul, Mongolia, is 20, well, at that time, he went to a village that was 25 hours by vehicle from the capital city. Way out in the middle of nowhere. I really mean the uttermost parts of the earth. And he and his wife and his uh, four children were the only people out there who knew the Lord. And if you are brave enough and willing enough and obedient enough, and God calls you to a place where there are no other Christians, you will have no Christian fellowship for a while. We need to be willing to endure that in order to bring others into the body of Christ and create bodies of Christian fellowship. If we're not willing to do that, the world's going to remain unreached. Half of it is. I met Gene Scott, who spent 50 years... 16 days short of 50 years. When he went out of the country for the last time, the passport agent stamped it and he said, Mr. Scott, you've been here 16 days short of 50 years. He went to the Sharinawa Indians and there were no Christians when he got there, but when he left, there was a church, a New Testament, the book of Genesis, some Psalms, and some historical portions of the Old Testament. A guy gave 50 years of his life to live away from America and his Christian heritage. God's worthy of that, folks. How about this, future? Timothy sacrificed his future. History records for us that Timothy was clubbed to death at a feast of Diana because he was not, uh, denouncing the, the idolatry of the people there. Someone said, we should rescue the perishing or be willing to perish in the rescuing. Third point, Timothy had a heart for the work of God. He was willing to be sent He was willing to make sacrifices and he had a heart for the work of God. Now let's go back to verse 20 and let me define this word for you. For I have no man like-minded. The word like-minded is a compound word, obviously, which means equal-souled. Equal-souled. That's a really powerful phrase. Paul is saying to us, out of all the Christians he knew, that Timothy was the only one who had the heart that Paul had. Now, we don't have time to develop all this, but let's just think about it for a minute. In 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23, where Paul is describing all the hardships he endured for the cause of Christ, and he said, shipwreck and beatings and stonings and cold and nakedness and hunger and fastings, and he went on and on in perils among uh, false brethren, in perils among uh, robbers. He went on describing all those difficult things he endured... And not one of us would question the depth of his commitment, enduring all of that and still being faithful to God. But then he says something at the end of that passage that to me reveals a far greater depth to his commitment. He said, besides all that, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches... You know what Paul is saying right there? He's saying, yes, it hurt to be stoned. Yes, it was not an enjoyable thing to be shipwrecked. And and no, it hurt to be beaten with rods and, and the stonings and the fastings. It was a horrible experience, all of that. But you know, the heaviest thing on me is my burden for the church. We can't question the depth of Paul's heart and commitment, can we? And Paul says right here, Timothy has the same heart I do. What a commendation. What, a, what, a, what an amazing testimony from Paul of his fellow servant. So Paul's assessment was that he looked around, and though there were many Christians around him, he said, I, I just have one, Timothy. That's the one who has the heart I do. Notice he says, I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. This natural care is referring to to the love of a nurturer, of a shepherd. And And he's just saying, this is the only man I know. Timothy's the only man I know who cares for you like I care for you. You say, well, Paul was in Rome. There were no other Christians. Well, I beg to differ because we can go to Romans chapter 16 and find that he greets 26 Christians by name. But as he looked around, he said, I can only find one with this kind of heart. There are saints to be taught. There are baby Christians to be nurtured. There are sinners to be won. There are unreached people groups to be penetrated with the gospel. And I just have one man right here that I think has the burden for it like I have it. Isn't that a powerful testimony? You know what the problem was? The problem was the same thing we have today. Look at chapter 2, verse 21. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. What Paul is suggesting here is that most of them are in it for what they can get out of it. They're with them Christians. And we sure do need more Timothys. Can you say amen? We're not serving Paul, we're serving Jesus. But if Paul were to walk in this room tonight and say, you know, there is a mission need in a certain location and I would like let's see, um, how about, uh, could I, well, let's see, um, uh, well, well uh, let's see, um, could he point to you and say, there's one with a heart for the work of God. I have a sneaking suspicion that Jesus is walking through this room right now looking for people with a heart. Doesn't the Bible say the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth looking for those whose hearts are perfect toward him? God's looking for this kind of heart tonight. Will it be you?